in the late 80s and um, early 90s, I was introduced to the concept of biblical counseling uh, while I was in seminary. And my pastoral counseling class professor said that there were two basic paradigms of counseling. One which was called the integrationist approach, made most popular at that time by Larry Crabb, and then one which was called biblical counseling, which depended solely upon the Word of God and was faithfully expounded by Dr. J. Adams. Just, be, just as we're going on, guys, why don't we just use this pulpit mic? Can we do that? Because I think this is working well. Okay? Yeah, I don't want to shout at you, but I will if I have to. Um, so the two forms of counseling, Larry Crabb, the integrationist approach, and biblical counseling. Are you all familiar with integrationism? Are you familiar with what I mean? The integrationist approach is an approach which says that the Bible is not enough. The Bible doesn't speak to the issues that men face today, the, the unusual and difficult issues of today. And so because of that, we need uh, the help of uh, Freud and uh, Carl Rogers and B.F. Skinner and, and so forth. And so those two paradigms of uh, counseling uh, were given, and our professor told us to pick whatever paradigm we thought was best or was right. And by God's grace, and after growing up in church, I felt a natural gravitation toward biblical counseling. But brethren, this was not born out of any great theological conviction. I'd like to tell you it was, but it wasn't. Only a sense that it just seemed to me somehow the Bible should be enough. I'd heard enough of that uh, growing up. Somehow the Bible should be enough, but I wasn't sure why or I couldn't have really uh, supported that. However, after graduating in 1994, I never fully implemented that belief into practice. My pastoral counseling, while not fully integrationist, was erratic at best, to say the least. I longed to see the impact of God's word upon the lives of those who heard it. I longed to see lives changed, but honestly never truly did get to see that, at least not as I had longed to see it. And by God's providential workings in the mid-90s, I was introduced to Randy Patton and the ministry of Nank. And in that, we began hosting Nank's on-the-road training in the church which we were serving in at the time. And over the course of about uh, three years, we had those on-the-road trainings at that church. And then my wife and I attended the Nank training conference at the First Baptist Church of Lafayette in about the year 2000. Have any of you attended any conference there at Lafayette? Yes. Okay. So... Uh, you, I think, will uh, appreciate this. And it was an intense week of study in the principles of biblical counseling. It started at 8 o'clock in the morning, and with uh, just a number of breaks throughout the course of the day, we ended at about 9.30 at night. And we did that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then uh, Friday. Uh, we concluded in the morning by hearing the testimonies of those who had come through Faith Baptist Biblical Counseling Ministry. And there were individuals and entire families who stepped forward to testify 
of God's power in their lives made evident through the counseling of God's word. Many of those who stood there even said that as a result of the counseling ministry, they had actually come to be born again in sitting and listening to the word of God. We know that we call that pre-evangelism counseling. And many of these said that they had come to Christ just uh, through the counseling ministry. And this included whole families who stood before us and said that they had been brought to Jesus Christ. And so the presence of God's spirit was palpable as these testimonies were being given. And of the six or seven hundred of us that were in attendance at that time, I, I can tell you this, there was not a dry eye in that sanctuary. After which, hearing these testimonies, I recall turning to my wife and I said simply this, there he is. There he is. That's the God that I serve. There he is. I've been looking for him in my ministry. I've been wanting to see him. I've been wanting to see his power. There he is. That's the God I serve. The God who takes the spiritually broken and heals them. The God who takes the spiritually dead and gives them new life. The God who finds the lost and gives them hope and who gives them purpose. That's the God that I serve. There he is. Even today, as I share that with you, and as I think of those testimonies, some of which were riveting, a couple who, whose baby was made a paraplegic by the mistake of a nurse dropping him as a preemie. From the scale in which she was weighing that little baby, a twin brother, and she turned to write down his weight, and the baby wriggled off the scale and fell on his head. And to hear the testimony of this couple and others just like it, and how God, by his faithfulness through the ministry of his word and his spirit, used even these events to teach them and to bring glory to himself. I said to my wife, I can hardly wait to get back. That's the God I serve. That's the God that I've been looking for in my ministry. I was more convinced than ever of the power of God and his word to change lives. And at the outset of this session today, I want to encourage you, Christian, that's the God that you serve. Especially if you have the opportunity to bring counsel. He is the God of all power. There is no counseling case too big which could ever put God's power to the test. There is no sin too strong which could weaken his strength to defeat it. There is no sin so strong, no addiction so mighty to be mightier or stronger than the God that you serve. Let's be encouraged then this morning in our God who is omnipotent. Now, brethren, given our time, it can only be an overview and we'll briefly consider the omnipotence of God the Father and the omnipotence being seen in the important ministry then of God the Son. And I trust our overview, our overview will be a faith builder 
and a reminder of the God whom we serve. The scriptures say something significant. The scriptures call God the Lord God Almighty. You know, the titles and the names that God gives to us about himself reveal things which are important to us about his character. We know that God reveals himself with a number of varied titles throughout the uh, the entirety of the scriptures. In the very beginning of the Bible, for example, in Genesis chapter 1-1, God discloses himself as Elohim, the creator. In Genesis chapter 2, he reveals to us another name, Jehovah, Adonai, meaning the Lord. And this, of course, describes the kind of relationship that he will have as Elohim with his creation. But there's another title that God gives of himself, and it is this title, El Shaddai, translated God Almighty or Almighty God. In the Hebrew, El is God and Shaddai is Almighty. And I believe that we've all but forgotten this title of God whom we serve. The only time, honestly, that I hear the term God Almighty isn't really in the, house, in the house of God anymore. It's on the golf course or on the football field where someone is using this holy name of El Shaddai in an improper way. But when we come into the house of God, somehow we've seemed forgotten that God calls himself God Almighty. Throughout the scriptures, this is the way that God many times chooses to describe himself. And we find the very first usage of this term in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. Would you turn there? We're going to be in a number of passages this morning. But we begin here in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. God's dealings with Abram, not quite Abraham, but God's dealings with Abram here in Genesis 17 and 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God is dealing with Abram and the promise that he will give of the Abrahamic covenant And he says here, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. The revelation of this name for God is significant because in the way that we see it first used here, it is in a context of promise. The promise to Abraham. The name God Almighty evidences that God is saying he is all powerful. And by that power, he has the ability to keep every promise that he will make. This is important because we know that God made another promise In the garden, just after the fall, when Adam and Eve had sinned, in Genesis 3.15 we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first promise that we get in the scriptures of Jesus Christ. And we get it right where we need it the most, in the midst of man's sin. And the Greek protos means first... Uagalion in Greek means gospel. And what we see in this passage evidences to us the first evangel message. And we see it where we need it. 
and the consequences of man's sin. I want you to see in Genesis 3.15 the power of God in this verse. In the midst of man's physical and spiritual devastation, in the midst of the attack that Satan had brought against God's creation and all the scheming that Satan had brought to bear against it. And by the way, may I just suggest to you this morning, as those who are here at a biblical counseling conference, the attack of the enemy has not changed. The hiss of Satan is still this, even in our day. Did God really say? You see, the attack of Satan is always against the word of God. It was so in the beginning, and it is so today. Can we really trust God's word? Can we really trust the power of God to stand behind his word? And God's power is seen here in Genesis 3.15 against the crushing impact of the fall, bringing spiritual and physical sin and sickness and death. And in the midst of all of that, God makes this promise of the coming great deliverer for mankind, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, he says, will come and crush. Thus, by the time we see God dealing with Abram, we can more fully understand the significance of the name which he gives, for God chooses to reveal it in the midst of making his covenant promise to Abraham, which is an extension of this promise in the garden. Except that here, God chooses also, which he didn't do in Genesis 3. Here, in this passage, in Genesis 17, God chooses to reveal his name to us. A name which he says that he is because he is almighty. The almighty Lord, the almighty God. He can bring his promises to pass. That's the kind of promise I'm interested in. Isn't that the kind of promise you're interested in? I'm not interested in the promises that a man will make to me on television. Trying to teach our kids right now. My my son has this great ability to memorize commercials. We're seeing if we can work that into memorizing the word of God, you know, other things. But uh, And he'll hear something and he'll come and he'll give us almost verbatim the promise of that commercial. Mom... If you buy that vacuum cleaner, it will A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. It'll suck bowling balls. It'll pull in cars from the driveway. It'll, you know, trying to teach that you have to be careful about whom you depend on when they make promises to you. But here we see something that God makes a promise and he says, I'll stand behind it because I'm almighty. What's that name? What's the name that he gives? El Shaddai. God is the strongest of the strong. Listen to some of these further biblical descriptions. Deuteronomy 3.24. O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and the mighty works which you do? Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. Psalm 24 and verse 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Psalm 89 and verse 8. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Jeremiah 10.6. 
No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. And I love this verse, Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a verse? Our God is mighty to save. So it is significant that the first occurrence of God using this name appears in connection to the patriarch Abraham. Because what it's telling us is that God's saying, here are these promises that I've made, that promise that I made back in Genesis 3.15, this promise that I'm making to you, Abraham, this promise that we could say for all the patriarchs which will come, this promise is made by the God who is almighty. In essence, God is saying that his promises are backed up by his power. And what we come to see just with that overview is this. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is mighty God. In the New Testament, this name of God, this El Shaddai name, develops. And literally, as Martin Luther says, is fleshed out. Such a great picture. It's fleshed out. And the name in the Greek becomes Pantocrator, which is a a compound of two Greek words meaning all and power. Thus again, we see even in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the Almighty or the All-Powerful One. Just as it was used of God in the Old Testament, now it is used of God in the New Testament. And dear brethren, that's significant. For Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah's name would be Mighty God. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, if you would please. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The prophecy of the coming Messiah. And see the names that Jesus will hold according to Isaiah. You're familiar with this text, no doubt. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. What is it? Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Who will be called those things? Jesus Christ. And so please be certain of this as against to what we so often hear in the false religions when they say that Jesus isn't really God or Jesus never made any self-declarations to be God himself. By the way, all all you need to do is read what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Isn't it amazing that in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with a ruler Right? Nicodemus. And he sort of confounds Nicodemus in the presentation. But when he speaks to this woman at the well, the one broken by sin, the one burdened by her own guilt, and she says, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll tell us all these things. And what does Jesus say? It's a self-declaration. I who speak to you am he. The Messiah. The everlasting God. The mighty God. And so what we see is that Jesus is certainly God. The definition of God and his name remains the same in Jesus Christ. And the immense greatness of God whose power is seen over all of creation is seen in Jesus Christ. Look to John chapter 17 and verse 3. Our brother referenced this this morning. 
in our very first hour. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And see what Jesus says himself. We know that this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And see what verse 3 says. And now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus here is saying that to know God is to know Christ, and to know Christ is to know God. And so Isaiah says, this is the mighty God. This is the one who comes with all power to back up what he says. Now, as we understand that, we might understand a wee bit better than in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Now, keep your fingers going. Matthew 28 and verse 18. We know this text. We're familiar with it. It's called the Great Commission. But understand the impotence, the importance behind that Great Commission. Jesus says this, all what? All authority. Wow. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given and placed in Jesus Christ. Little wonder does Isaiah say he'll come as mighty God. All authority, says Jesus, is mine. Authority in heaven is mine. Authority on earth is mine. You'll not go to a place where Jesus says, I don't have authority. I'll send you all over the world, but more importantly, even to the end of the age, all time is held in the authority of Jesus Christ. The word used for authority is exousia, and it means here the power to act. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you all over, and I have the authority. I have the power to act. Now we see then in Christ the reason that he is called by Isaiah the mighty God or the strongest strong one. Jesus Christ has given this name to evidence his strength and his power. But here, listen now, especially in battle. And if you did a study of the Old Testament word here of El Shaddai, you would see that it has something to do with the Hebrew root word of doing battle. And so Christ is called the mighty God specifically because he is the strongest one fit to do battle. Thus Christ came to fight. But what was the battle over and who was the battle with? Again, we're given the answer in Genesis 3.15. We're told... And we're told by the Father that his son would be fitted there in that passage. His son would be fitted to come and to do battle against our enemy, the greatest enemy that we've ever known, the devil. Christ came as the second Adam to make right what the first Adam failed to do in the garden. And in this context, because of Adam's sin, God was promising that he would send his son in a very special way to battle against the very same wicked one that brought temptation into the garden by seducing Eve and who no doubt gleefully watched Adam as he willingly plunged all his posterity into sin. Satan must have been thrilled. It's an amazing thing, by the way, and you are familiar with this perhaps if you do counseling, this little trick that we all do, we get from our first parents, that little trick called blame-shifting. We learned it from our first parents, right? 
Adam, why did you do this? Adam, uh, the woman you gave me, she tempted me, and I did eat. It's an amazing thing to see Adam accuse Eve, accuse God, but leave unnamed whom? The devil. Isn't that amazing? Uh, We're still willing to do that, aren't we? We're still very willing to do that, to blame shift. Lord, it's everybody else. We think that we're going to be like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz, right? When we stand before God. Give an account of yourself. Everybody else. It couldn't be me. The woman you you gave me, Lord. She tempted me, and I did eat. And Satan must have laughed, even even as he remained unnamed right there in the garden. Now, as we consider the truth that Jesus came to earth as a man to fight, there are three battlegrounds that I want for us to briefly consider this morning as we think of omnipotence. The first is the devil's temptation of Christ. The second is Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the third battleground is seen at Calvary. Each of these gives evidence as to why we can claim the promise of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13 for the counselees who come in to see you. The first is the battleground of temptation, Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 through 13. Now, if you're familiar with Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, you know that Luke begins by saying that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And as you read that text, we come really to one of the most pivotal. We'll not take the time to read it today. I'm going to trust that you will have at least some knowledge of these texts that we'll look at. But we come here in Luke chapter 4 to one of the most pivotal passages and consequently one of the most important of all of the scriptures. Why is that so? Well, it is the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's the first face-to-face confrontation between Christ and his enemy, the devil. And certainly this is a partial fulfillment of what we've already read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And now we see this important day of battle come. And as we approach this passage, we must remember that the Lord was not tempted because of his own fleshly sinfulness, unlike us. This was not the cause of Christ's temptation. So as Christ was being tempted, he did not struggle with the same inward sinful lusts that afflict us. He was perfectly pure. In point of fact, it is actually his purity which made this this series of temptations at the hand of the devil that much more powerful. As Shedd explains, Christ was solicited by sinless temptation more strongly than any man was ever by sinful temptation. No drunkard, no sensualist was ever allured by vicious appetite so fearly as Jesus Christ was by innocent appetite when after 40 days he hungered. And so we see here that the perfectly sinless one, the almighty one, came to wage battle with the great deceiver, the devil. He came to fight on behalf of those who could not fight for themselves. This was not an easy battle. Why so? Well, it was a battle for the very kingdoms of the world. So let's consider the temptations of Christ here, that we may see that he is mighty God. In Luke chapter 4 
and verse 3, we read of the first temptation, and we know it as the lust of the flesh. Is there anything wrong with the bread itself? Satan says, take this stone and, and turn it into bread and eat it. Anything wrong with the bread itself? No, there's not a thing wrong with the bread itself. Rather, it was the reason for the eating of the bread. The devil wanted Christ to prove his divinity in a way outside of the Father's will. He was tempting Jesus to act apart from faithful dependence upon God. And he says this, if you are. Now, here's an interesting point. The word if here actually can be translated to mean since. And so Satan says to Jesus, since you are. You see, Satan knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He knew the prophecy about Christ's coming, crushing the head and bruising the heel. He knew it, and he wanted to stop it. He was there when God said that. Therefore, Satan was tempting Christ to act outside of the plan of God in the process of revealing his sonship to the world. We can understand that an important part of each of these temptations of Jesus Christ, then, as we'll see them, is to prove his divinity without having to go through the painful time and the humiliation and the horrible death upon the cross of Calvary. That's why in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter gives this answer. Well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, Peter, blessed are you. You've come to this, right? This great lifting up of Peter's faith and the faith that was given to Peter And then just a few verses later, Jesus says, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And what does Peter say? Oh, Lord, not you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus turns around and says, what to Peter? He whom he's just lifted up, what does he turn around and say? Get behind me. The devil always wanted to keep Jesus from the cross. Want to know the mark of a false religion? False religion either keeps Jesus from the cross or keeps Jesus on the cross. See, it's always about the cross. It's always about the battle. It's always about what the mighty one came to do. And here Satan is trying to tempt Jesus. Take this, since you're the Christ. Why be hungry? Eat it. Take the bread and eat it. In verses 5 and 6, we see the second temptation the lust of the eyes. Satan now tempts Christ with this phrase, if you will worship me. Remember, the desire for worship is what drove Satan from heaven in the first place, isn't it? You can see it in Isaiah chapter 14. Thus his battle and his desire still continues here as now he gets to tempt the Holy One of heaven. If Christ would have worshipped Satan, he would have delivered all of the kingdoms of the world into his wicked rule. Do you see the need then for a mighty God in dealing with Satan in terms of the lust of the flesh? In verse 9, the third temptation is the pride of life. The pride of life. Since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here. Notice it's the same root of temptation. Since you are God's son, it's just in a different form. All Satan cared about was thwarting Christ from his life of perfect obedience because he knew that he would nullify Christ's ability to be the perfect sacrifice. And here again, he tries to offer Christ the benefits of being the Messiah without the pain of the cross. And we see in this temptation that Christ was tempted to put a false trust in the Father Because the devil was taking God's word out of context. Brethren, you ought to learn something as you're counseling with people from this text. Satan picks up what Jesus is doing. It says, it says, it says, right? 
And Satan picks it up. And how does he tempt Jesus? He tempts Jesus this way. It says. And he quotes perfectly Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But Satan does what he always does with the word of God. He distorts it. He twists it. He manipulates it. He uses it out of context. But it ought to be something for us to recognize that the devil has the word of God memorized. It's hard enough for us to get Christians to memorize the word of God. But if we're going to fight temptation, we need to do it like Jesus did. You have to teach your counselees this. You want to fight temptation? Memorize the word of God. And recognize it's important enough for the the enemy of our souls to even have God's word memorized. And that third temptation, the devil takes God's word out of context as he gives it. Well, that's the first battleground. The second battleground is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that Jesus, the mighty God, comes to do battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. You're familiar with this passage. While there's not an explicit temptation of Christ by Satan in the Garden, this was likely another opportunity of temptation. We do know that there was a danger of temptation at least leveled at the disciples, Peter, James, and John. For in verse 40, Jesus warns them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. The word Gethsemane literally means wine press. And this garden was the place that Jesus often went to pray. And on the last night in this garden, would indeed that garden, that wine press would live up to its name and serve as the battleground for the mighty God. For here in this garden, Jesus, the second Adam, was certainly pressed nearly to the point of death. He was pressed by what he was about to endure and pressed by the full weight of his humanity. For he, we see he prays with 100% humanity. Lord, is there any way? Father, is there any way this cup can be taken from me? The battle is not a a conflict between the will of God and the will of Jesus. Rather, the battle reveals for us just how Jesus, in his humanity, voluntarily surrendered his will to the will of his Father. And so he prays three times. What I have said is probably the most frightening prayer a Christian can pray. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Christ is engaged in a battle with his own human passions. And although these were not sinful passions, they nonetheless still needed to be submitted to the will of the Father if Satan was to be defeated. Thus the mighty God, fit for such battle, humbly takes up the cup. The cup you have given me, shall I not drink it? He willingly takes upon himself then our own sin knowing that he will soon be enduring the holy wrath of God without any recourse to see it averted. In fact, we read that Christ prayed so hard in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat drops of blood. It's called hemohydrosis. And there's a record of a girl in World War II hiding in a bomb shelter, sweating drops of blood going and fearing the battle which was raging over her head. Dear saint, please see this and understand the name Mighty God. This was a battle. This was a battle. The battle for the kingdoms of the world, a battle for the souls. And then we see the third and the final battleground is the battle played out upon Calvary. 
Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 through 56. And the battle here is with the consequences of the first Adam's sin and consequently the sin of all those after him. Can you imagine the crushing weight of sin that would have been placed upon Christ's shoulders? Can you think of the resulting anguish Christ was set to endure because his father would not have to only punish him but also turn away from his only begotten son? Somehow our counselees will come and see us and they think that their sin isn't all that serious. Uh, you, you know, and you can pick one. Let's pick one, the sin of worry. You know how many people have said to me in utter shock and surprise, worry is a sin? Who knew? I didn't know that worry was a sin. Worry is a sin. And it's a sin for which Christ died. It's a sin that was placed upon Jesus Christ. Sometimes your counselees may act like their sin's not such big. Well, I know it's a sin, but <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes people will think that God will wink at their sin. Oh, God and I have an arrangement. God and I have a special deal going. God knows me. Listen, if God didn't wink at sin when he saw it in his only begotten son, do you really think he's going to wink at it when he sees it in you? If there was ever a time that God was going to dismiss the sin, how hard do you think it was for the Father? Now I'm speaking in human terms. How hard do you think it was for the Father to turn away from His Son in that garden, in that wine press? Father, is there another way? How hard would it be for the Father to turn away? There is no other way. How hard would it be for the Father when Abraham laid Isaac upon the altar and he provided a ram for Abraham, but he knew that there would be no one to stop him from slaying? laying his own son. How hard would that have been? And God doesn't wink at our sin. It's so serious that he sent his only son to die upon the cross of Calvary. And it was a battle. And it was a battle that only the mighty God could do. Thus does Jesus Christ call out, Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only must Christ do battle with the wicked forces of the enemy as he hangs upon the cross, enduring their insults, enduring their jeers, he must also be strong enough to endure the despair of being abandoned by his Father as the wrath of a holy God was poured upon him because he was my sin-bearer and your sin-bearer. Is it any wonder that Christ had to be the mighty God? None but God's Son could be strong enough to endure what Christ had to endure on Calvary. And none but God's Son could be sinless in order to pay the price. Now on these three battlegrounds then, our mighty God was victorious. Amen? Yet we're thankful that Calvary is not the last scene in the story of our Savior. Jesus proved himself mighty in defeating death at his own resurrection. And we know that Christ will once again evidence himself mighty on the last day when he returns. And the graves of the dead will be torn open. And the righteous will be raised with Christ to eternal life. And the dead raised to eternal judgment. For the Christian then death has been swallowed up in what? The victory of the one who is the mighty God. Now brethren for our context today. This overview and it is only that should help us to understand the significance then of Paul's words 
in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. Now understand it in the context of the mighty one. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Hmm. We've seen how mighty our God is, how mighty his son became in human flesh. And now Paul tells us that through this mighty God, we can do all things, meaning that we can do all things that God calls us to do through the strength of his son who indwells us. I can't go out here on Center Ridge Road and stop a bus with my bare hands. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying, I can do all the things that Christ calls me to do through his strength. This mighty God, this El Shaddai, I can do all those things. You see, because Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, I can do all the things that God calls me to do. Not because I'm strong, not because I have ability on my own, not because I'm smart enough. Heaven knows that's not true. I can do it all through Jesus Christ, the strongest strong one, the mighty God. The Apostle Paul tells us that as Christians, whatever we've been called to do, since we are in Christ, we will have the ability and the power to do. Conversely, whatever the Christian should not do, he is given strength by the indwelling of Christ's spirit to deny. Hendrickson is helpful when he categorizes the power of Christ in the following three ways. Number one, the power of Christ's sufficient grace indwells the Christian. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says this, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of the Mighty One may rest upon me. Not upon my own strength, but upon the strength of the Mighty God, whose name is Jesus Christ. Secondly, the power of Christ's help. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 17, but the Lord stood by me, and the Lord strengthened me. And thirdly, says Hendrickson, the power of Christ's strength. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And so, saints, as we come today to talk about the attributes of God, here we see the omnipotent power Christ has evidenced himself as the mighty God by defeating the temptation of Satan, submitting his own human passions to the will of the Father, enduring the abandonment of the wrath of his Father upon the cross, and defeating death by leaving an empty tomb. All of these make him mighty to save. All of these make him an awesome God. Dear saints, that's the God I serve. And those of us who formally counsel need to be reminded and encouraged in the wonderful truth that our God is God Almighty. There is no sin too strong for him not to be able to forgive. No person can be so deeply trapped in their addiction that he cannot lift you out. No marriage is so dead which is beyond his power to resurrect it and to restore. No child's rebellion is stronger than his grace to Christian parents. Dear Christian counselor, Christ came as the mighty God, and that is the God that you serve. He's an awesome God.
Father, thank you for your wondrous truth to us. Thank you for displaying your promises in the precious gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we serve a God who is mighty to save, and we serve a God who is awesome. Oh, Lord, teach us, I pray, to remember that one of the most important names for our triune God is God Almighty. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.